the existence of, of these social media platforms has been so beneficial to the spread of conservative speech. If you get rid of them, if you go back to, you know, the, it, it was, it's not social media, but the era before social media, it's, 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 it's uh, mainstream media, which, which was really, really unfriendly to conservative speech and conservative ideas. So, so these innovations have allowed ideas outside the norms of what kind of mainstream media people think about things. It's been, it's been, a, it's been a boon. It's been a, a, a tremendous gift to conservative speech. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. This week, I'm joined by our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor. So, Dan, it's Monday, the 3rd of August. It's, we're recording at 6.30 p.m. Have you eaten out to help out yet? <laughs> no, sadly, I haven't. Uh, it's something that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. And to be honest, I'm not going to be going for the posh restaurants. I'm going to be getting a nice discount from my local McDonald's just up the road because like a good neoliberal, I support big business as well as small. <laughs> I, I went to my local uh, breakfast club. So we've also got online Robbie Suave from Washington, D.C., who's the senior editor at Reason Magazine. He probably has literally no idea what we're talking about right now, though. I do not, in fact. <laughs> so, so for background for all our non-British listeners, today is the day that the government will start paying for half of your meal up to £20 um, Monday to Wednesday to try to get people out uh, and, and support uh, restaurants. Now, oh, really? obviously, yeah, it, it's obviously just a ridiculous idea, but we're going to take every advantage of it we can. So, Robbie, I last saw you, I think, around Halloween, uh, and it feels like we've been living in a repetitive Halloween ever since. How's post-apocalyptic DC treating you? Uh, it's a pretty, it's pretty miserable, <laughs> pretty miserable place. Uh, I mean, our 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 pan- the pandemic is is very much under control in DC. Um, we don't have that many cases, and we we have very very few deaths, like less than one death a day, um, and yet. And we have things kind of partly reopened, but they're absolutely not going to reopen the schools um, until at least November. And you're supposed to wear a mask just at all times, like even in my apartment building, uh, which I, I find a little absurd. I, I, can only, I can only trump you on that uh, on my home city, Melbourne, which is now all my friends and family are under permanent curfew, I believe. Uh, house arrested and, and can't leave home for more than an hour a day. So it's not all fun and games. Luckily, luckily here in London, it's shockingly sunny and we're allowed, we're encouraged to go out these days. That's lucky. Yeah. Lucky you. I mean, they, I mean, obviously it feels like city, if you, you went through a bad time and then you got over it and then it seems like it's safe again. Um, but the U S is so vast and there's just so many areas that didn't get hit at all really when everything seemed nuts a few weeks ago. And so now they're getting hit. Uh, but so probably they didn't need to lock down when like, you know, the, the East Coast lockdown, but everybody locked down at the same time and now they now they're reopen and now things are bad there. And so it's just kind of, it's it's a it's a whole mess. It's a huge mess. It's the country. reoccurring nightmare of our lives. Well, let, let's let's get onto that in some exciting policy chats. So today we're going to be discussing Wiley and free speech, whether the tech giants are anti-competitive monopolies and Trump's delayed the election tweet. Ooh, spooky. So just on this Wiley issue, so British grime artist Wiley, who, Robbie, you've probably never heard of, honestly, I'd never heard of previously, but I think Dan is very familiar with, has now been kicked off Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram after some anti-Semitic tirades. Um, he's issued a form of an apology for generalizing about Jewish people, and he's sorry, his, this is a very childish apology, isn't it? He was sorry if 
we looked anti-Semitic. Uh, so Dan, can you run us through who is Wiley and uh, why is this attracted so much controversy? Sure. So as you said, I think I'm the only Grime fan on this podcast at the moment. And probably for, for our US listeners as well, it's worth explaining what it is. So it's a, a genre of music that kind of originated in inner city East London in the early 21st century. And it's basically a form of rap, extremely, extremely popular uh, in the UK. What I'm going to have this is you're way cooler than us by the fact that you listen to Grime. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'd say I'd say if anything, it's the opposite that uh, I listen to grow it. But the problem here is that Wiley is kind of one of the godfathers of this music scene. So he's got a really high amount of influence over uh, an awful lot of people. And he's extremely famous, especially amongst young people in the UK. And he's put out these tweets that, as you mentioned, are just straight up anti-Semitic. I mean, he said things like Jewish people don't care what black people went through, they just use us to make money to feed their kids. So some open and shut anti-Semitism. Uh, and of course, he's attracted a lot of controversy here. The, probably the biggest uh, problem with with his tweets was that he was talking about uh, telling Jewish people to hold some corn, which is slang for getting shot, basically. Uh, and there's some debate over whether that can be meant in the literal sense, or whether it can be interpreted as receiving kind of more general backlash. But that was the kind of the tweet that I think, push, uh, push things over the edge. Yeah, so th- this kind of re-emphasizes um, one of these fundamental debates about free speech and to what extent we allow people to put out hateful ideas. Um, I think the response was quite vicious from, from a lot of quarters, which was this proposal for this 48-hour boycott of Twitter because Twitter was too slow to remove his content. Um, Robbie, what, what's your take in terms of how we should respond to these kind of incidents of, of hate. Do, do, are you on the pro-censorship camp, or I, I suspect not from your extensive work on, on campus? What's, what is the best way to respond? Right. I mean, I, I tend to be more on the, the side of leaving up offensive content or offensive posts or indeed hateful posts because I really don't like getting down into this. So obviously in this case, it's, I, I think it's obvious and clear that it's anti-Semitic and it's hateful um, but there, there can be edge cases for what counts as hate. And by the way, I know, you know, what, what, for instance, students on America, a lot of them college, American college campuses, British college campuses, uh, and elsewhere, what they, what, what they think um, counts as hateful speech is like anything that they disagree with. <laughs> so I'm yeah. wary of just of the idea in general, given how broadly defined hate, the term hate is coming to be. I'm, I'm reticent to say that, yes, hateful speech should be taken down. Now, of course, these are, we're talking about private organizations, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. So they can, they can do whatever they want. They can set whatever policies they want. And indeed, they can even enforce them if they want unequally, which, is, which will be the fate of all these policies. They are always enforced unequally because there's just too much content. And it's usually it's a, it's a reporting mechanism. So someone complains about this speech and it gets taken down. But this speech that is identically or worse offender of the policy, nothing happens to it because no one noticed it. No one complained. So it, lo- it comes off looking biased. Bias is the, is the effect, even though it's, it's not really bias on the part of the company or even the rules. It's just, how, it's just them being enforced when there's so much content. Yeah, certainly the, the response to this in terms of 
people accusing Twitter of bias came pretty much equally from both sides with one group of people saying, oh, Twitter took far too long to take it down. And this shows that Twitter doesn't take anti-Semitic content as seriously. And then uh, another group of people saying the exact opposite. And actually, how come you're enforcing this so heavily, whereas in X other case, you didn't. So it's pretty hard for the the tech companies to really not be accused of bias in any of these cases. Yeah, I think that's right. Some of our colleagues were were quite uh, sympathetic to the boycott on the basis that if Twitter's going to have a policy, they should enforce it consistently. Anti-Semitism has been uh, a quite disgusting issue in, in British public life for a long time. And the fact that people haven't taken it as seriously is a problem. But I think that potentially puts the impetus in the wrong place, doesn't it, Robbie? That, but we're, we're saying that platforms should in, in some way be responsible for their conduct of, user, the, the conduct of users. And then that then feeds into debates we're having about liability, about online, what we call online harms in the UK, which is this whole new regime to censor the internet. Um, I was wondering from an American perspective with all this debate about Section 230, um, which you can probably run us through because it, it's, it gets quite complicated very quickly. Um, in what way we should be seeing platforms as liable if that is just a, a universally terrible idea? Right. So, so Section 230 is, is, a, is a, a law for, for the laws that govern um, uh, the internet in the, in the United States that, that, ba- that establishes that the platforms, it, it's the internet uh, providers, they're, they're platforms and they are immune from certain degree of liability for like defamation, for libelous speech. So if you, you know, if I write uh, a post at re- for reason.com, for Reason Magazine, an article that, that is libelous, I can be sued and Reason can be sued. If I write a book that's libelous, my publisher can be sued. Um, but if I post something libelous on Facebook and just like a Facebook post, you can sue me. You can't sue Facebook. You can't sue Twitter, et cetera. There's a, if there's a comment on a, 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 on an internet provider platform, uh, they're not their section two thirty prevents you from suing them, which, so it makes sense why you would have that because you could, if, if, if Twitter had to vet or Facebook or whatever had to vet, uh, everything, all the the speech that was appearing on the platform beforehand to like fact to make sure it's not going to be libelous or going to get them into legal trouble. You just couldn't. I mean, you, you couldn't do like. There's too much content. There's too many people posting. It's not the same as my magazine that you know that hires a couple people and you know they generally and we we get it we get edited before we the you know a book publisher does fact checking. You know the li- a library can do curation. It's it's hard. You, it, it's hard to to impossible to do that kind of curating for this vast an ocean of content. So Section 230 recognized that to promote sort of a free internet uh, and not, not hamper it down in lawsuits, uh, you, would, you would shelter companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google, et cetera. Yeah, and this is actually, there's an equivalent of in uh, UK law, at least through the European Union, which is the Article 14 of the e-commerce directive, that basically has the same idea. And this more or less actually derived from some more historical thinking about whether or not a bookstore should be liable for the content of books. And the answer to that was no, they shouldn't be, because if a bookstore had to pre-check every book, uh, it would lead to them having fewer books in their stores because of the, the potential liability and the same principle for online speech. And therefore, this becomes a protection of free speech. But we've got this weird situation now where President Trump has put out an executive order saying he wants to withdraw this liability from the tech companies if they fail to uphold free speech. 
uh, which is a whole nother different logic. Like it's a special subsidy to the, the tech companies that they're not liable for the content of their users, which as we've said, is, is not a special liability. Um, but he's also just directed the FCC to have a look into potentially removing their liability. Now, what, what, what do we think the likelihood of that is? Is Trump actually able to legally put forward that executive order? I, I don't think the FCC is going to take action on this. Um, I, I don't think that's a concern that the government, that the federal government is going to do it unilaterally. Um, I am quite concerned there could be regulation that that alters Section 230 or gets rid of it entirely in a way that, that harms uh, online free speech because the other side wants to do it too. Democrats very much want to get uh, Elizabeth Warren Joe Biden, if and when he becomes president, this will, this is a top item. He's unequivocally said he wants it reformed or gotten rid of. That's because they, you know, it's and it's for opposite reasons, but they end up agreeing. The the left, the Democrats, they 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 think that Facebook, you know, has allowed disinformation that affects elections, disinformation about the pandemic, you know, Russian bots and Facebook groups, and it, there's electioneering going on. And Facebook didn't take strong enough protections, uh, uh, strong enough actions against that because they don't have to because they have all this liability protection. So they want to punish Facebook by getting rid of it. Then on the other side, Republicans say, well, but there's been some cases where we feel we've been politically discriminated against or there's bias and our stuff was taken down, vice versa. I actually, I think Facebook actually gets a very bad rap here because they, Facebook, unlike Twitter, has tried to chart a generally more pro-free expression course. Um, but they, so they say if, well, if they're going to be, uh, you know, they say the deal of section 230 is that, you know, you're just going to allow all the, all speech, and then we're not going to punish you, uh, in liability terms. But now if you're picking and choosing what speech is okay, and you're deciding that conservative speech is not okay, well, then you shouldn't have that protection. Uh, so they end up agreeing, even though it's totally opposite reasons, isn't it? The worrying thing for me here is that there's already bipartisan precedent for undermining Section 230. And when I was working in D.C. a few years ago, we had the Foster-Sesta debate going on, uh, the Fighting Online Sex Trafficking Act. And of course, this was a very much a bipartisan effort to undermine some of those safe harbor protections from Section 230 and in the process start endangering the lives of sex workers who are unable to use the kind of online platforms that help keep them safe. So it's not as though this is a kind of a new thing that's come up on the legislative agenda. There's been people from both major parties trying to undermine it for years. Yeah, another big way in which it's undermined actually is by the EU's copyright directive, uh, which effectively puts liability on, on tech companies to pre-censor material for, for copyright reasons. Um, it's also interesting that we've seen some of the proponents, as I was kind of flagging earlier, this online harms regime that the UK government has flagged it intends to put in place. Now, that, that intends to create what they've called a duty of care uh, on tech companies to deal with both unlawful but also legal but harmful content, which is a whole range of speech that could just be simply offensive. Now, they're going to give it the power to Ofcom, which is the kind of communications regulator in, in the UK, kind of like the FCC, to create all these guidelines for, for social media companies. Um, they claim initially that doesn't necessarily change their liability, but in practical terms, it creates a very strong incentive on tech companies to remove any content that could potentially fall foul of the, the, the guidance when it comes to what is broadly harmful content. And I, I think really worryingly where we're, we're seeing this debate go more broadly is that there doesn't really seem to be much love for online free speech. There does seem to be relentless efforts to try to undermine that for all these different reasons, be it dis disinformation, as you're saying, Robbie, or uh, hate speech or whatever else. Um, and that's going to be really hard, I think, to 
basically protect the free internet as much as we might uh, point to China and their great firewall and the, the great censorship they have or what Russia does to their internet or all of these other countries. I, I think really our legitimacy in these, debate is, these debates is being lost as we in the West often seek to censor our own internet. Well, yeah, and just the idea that that the government should interfere here or, that, or free speech in general because it seems like it's becoming such a, right, my side uh, should have free speech, but your side is disinformation or harassment or something, and it just goes both ways. I mean, that you know, that was on display at this this antitrust hearing they had. It's just it's total. We want more speech for my kind of per, my political conservative or politically liberal coalition, um, and we and we're all for free markets and free speech. If we're just talking about those people, but then for the other side, we want you know we want investigations and we want hearings and we want crackdowns and laws to stop you from sharing information we don't like. Well, let, let's move on to that. So last week, the CEOs of Apple, Google, Amazon, and Facebook were dragged before the House Judiciary's Antitrust Subcommittee. Uh, they were forced to defend their companies against claims of anti-competitive behavior and are exercising unfair market power. Uh, Robbie, why do you think suddenly these companies are really the, this huge focus of the authorities? What, what's happened to, to lead us to this moment? I mean, we're just we're really just experiencing this confluence of interest where so Democrats, uh, liberals are by nature interested in doing kind of antitrust regulation, interested in regulating big companies for the sheer reason that they're big um, and in looking at their labor practices. And but and also and, you you know, you've brought in the other side because Republicans are have have are scapegoating big tech to some degree. Uh, and, and are very mad about the, what they perceive to be political bias that, again, I think is, is worst on Twitter, or you, or you can make the most obvious case that there's, from the top, direct political bias against conservatives. But of course, Twitter wasn't at this hearing. This is a hearing of four kind of unrelated companies. I mean, they're obviously they're, they're related in some ways, but Google and Facebook are, are social media. Uh, you know, Amazon sells actual products, like actual physical goods, and no one actually no, and no one believes Apple is a monopoly. So it was a so, which you know, this is an anti. But declining market share in in smartphones, so they're they're pretty <laughs> terrible monopolists. Right. So it's uh, it's you know, again, Amazon has some some monopoly power, uh, mostly to provide really discounted goods and services that are like really important right now. <laughs> what a tragedy, Robbie. I can't believe I that Amazon is providing me next day delivery of thousands and thousands of goods. I feel very hurt as a consumer by this. Yeah. And uh, again, Facebook is actually does have competitors. So I wouldn't even say they are a monopoly, but their service is free. It's not, you know, they'll suddenly jack up the, you know, they'll, they'll corner the market on places you can store pictures of families online and they'll like jack up the price, they'll move the price from zero to something else. I'm like, this is not a realistic fear whatsoever. Um, and then Google, you know, I, I'm listening to the things they're complaining about. I think there's some legitimate grievances people would have against Google. It seems like they've done some things that are, are questionable. So maybe you have a hearing about them, but it's just like, it's just, it was so across the board, all these random accusations. One person, one of the Republican, the ranking Republican, Jim Sensenbrenner, accused Facebook of censoring a Donald Trump Jr. post. And Mark Zuckerberg had this wonderful, was like, sir, I think you're talking about Twitter. Because it was Twitter that did that, not Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg said rightly that he, you know, his organization is the one that has said Facebook, that they're not going to um, really police ads that they think are wrong and that they're making more of a commitment to free expression and that the 
which has the left mad. So anyway, it's just, you know, there, there are various levels of wire where certain companies might have done something wrong or, but it, it, it just like the hearing didn't make sense on a conceptual level because they were totally unrelated. So just a, a question for you, Robbie, on the kind of political fallout of this. One thing I've been thinking about is how this increasing focus amongst people on the right and conservatives on antitrust and being anti-big tech, whether or not that that's going to have a, the consequence of actually making uh, progressives a little bit more sympathetic towards big tech and whether just purely through opposition, you're actually going to get a kind of pushback from the, the progressive side of things. Because, you know, if Trump's going after big tech and you're someone who very strongly dislikes Trump, then surely that means you don't mind big tech as much anymore. Right. So you would think that would happen. And the yin and yang of like the tribal political situation of the U.S. is certainly such that there's like two sides of every issue. And if one side starts to overtake the other, then like that side move, like with, with Russia was the perfect example of that with with sort of conservatives and Republicans being all like, you know, Russia is very dangerous and very bad. And then all of a sudden when Trump kind of seemed softer on Russia, or maybe he was even getting help from Russia in some roundabout way, then the, then the left becomes the, the, the Democrats become the, the, the party of sort of like national security concerns about Russia and Republicans become Russia is fine. And it like happens overnight. And all the cable news hosts reoriented themselves to like slot themselves perfectly, exactly, immediately in a, the course of a single night to be on what like the proper Russia opinion was. So could something like that happen with tech? It very well might. It, it seems to me, though, that the, the progressive interest in really regulating these companies uh, has not, the enthusiasm for that is not, uh, is not um, ebbing at all. So you might just have a perfect storm where everyone wants to regulate them, albeit for completely different and sometimes contradictory reasons. That's a depressing thought. So the fundamental challenge here, I think, in terms of trying to regulate these companies, and we were kind of getting to this in our uh, opening remarks about this issue is that you actually typically, particularly in American antitrust law and American competition law, you need to prove harm, uh, particularly consumer harm. Um, and because, uh, as, as we pointed out, uh, Facebook is a free service, Google is a free service, Amazon is pushing down the prices of uh, consumer goods, it's very hard to make that claim. So all, I think all the, then the claim you can make is that there are certain markets in which each company is dominant. So I think we saw this in the CMA report, the Consumer and Market Authorities report in the UK recently, where it said, oh, oh Google has 90% of display advertising and Facebook has 50% of uh, social advertising. But even once you start unpacking that, that means they're, they're dominant in sub-markets, but the actual overall markets, be it the advertising market, which is the cost of which is uh, online advertising has gone down by about 40% in the last decade, doesn't really show signs of monopolistic power. So I wonder to, to what extent we're going to look back on this moment, just like we looked back on claims that MySpace was a monopoly or IBM had monopoly over the punch card and mainframe market or Microsoft had a monopoly over internet browsers, and we're going to take a deep breath and say, what were we thinking? Or is this going to become a longer term issue where maybe these companies will be around for a long time because they will be effective at innovating and, and spending a lot on R&D and managing to gobble up a lot of other companies that you can argue for and against, obviously, um, that, that will keep them in place and, and mean that they're going to get all this attention. And then I suppose the next question then becomes, what, what, what are governments going to do about it? I mean, do they split up these companies? And then what are these companies, what do they mean split up? Like, are, are they even valuable split up? 
Well, I guess the optimistic view here is that regulators might finally realise that market concentration is not the same thing as competition, and they're two different things. Large businesses can be good for consumers, uh, and small ones can be not good for consumers. And especially when it comes to the the world of tech, as you say, there's not traditional uh, competition in the same way that you usually think about it with lots of small firms competing with each other. But you do have all of these digital platforms overlapping quite a bit in what they're actually doing uh, and constantly trying to expand into each other's markets. I mean, Google recently scrapped their fees for companies listing on Google Shopping because they were facing strong competition from Amazon. Uh, And yet you have some of these competition authorities saying that Google Shopping doesn't compete with Amazon. So a lot of it, I think, is just coming to terms with the fact that digital competition works slightly differently to what you'd read in an Econ econ 101 textbook 20 or, or 30 years ago. The other issue here is the kind of the opportunity cost relating to uh, where people focus their antitrust efforts, because right now it's pretty much all on big tech. That's the big story in town and that's the focus. But the real cost of focusing on big tech is is pretty large when you've got plenty of other sectors where there is potential problems with a lack of competition. If you look at the airline sector in the US, for example, that's a very clear example where things like uh, landing slot regulations are, are causing an awful lot less competition than perhaps they should be. I mean, your classic kind of classical liberal libertarian case against occupational licensing, which doesn't seem to be uh, being focused on anywhere near as much as big tech in the moment. So not only have a lot of the regulators got their focus wrong, they've also got the kind of theory behind competition completely wrong as well. Yeah, and there isn't, I, I think there was, even at that hearing, there was some recognition that these companies have not, broken the law as it currently stands. They Now, you could maybe, you can rewrite the law to say that they are monopolies in some other sense or that they're harming, uh, not that it, the harm doesn't have to be to the, to the consumer or to the customer, but can be to just other services that can't compete with them or something. But there is, and there's also a, an, an ephemeral nature in my mind to tech or to what, to what Facebook has or what Twitter has that just kind of stops them from being a, 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 I mean, there's a, right, a graveyard of previous internet social sites that just, that didn't make it or they stopped being popular for various reasons. There's a, I, you know, I, I totally believe, despite Facebook being the dominant, again, place to go talk to people and share pictures, that that could, ju- that that could change. That could just stop being the place. There's lots of, and, and then the argument would be, well, they'll try to swallow the, the next person that comes along, but not every company would be interested in being swallowed by Facebook. So it's 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 just not again. It, it doesn't seem like that big a problem, given given the especially given that the harm to the consumer is zero and it's free. Right, and you've got these kind of these smaller uh, market entrants. If you look at the meteoric rise of Zoom, for example, over the course of lockdown and uh, platforms like Slack as well, it's not as though there aren't new entrants snapping at the heels of the incumbents at the moment. Whilst it's true, sure, they might be bought up, they might not be. Uh, that's still a very good incentive for, for new firm generation and for innovation as well. And on the point about, well, you know, perhaps we can solve this non-existent problem by breaking up some of the big tech firms. I mean, oftentimes lawmakers, they're not actively as concerned with competition itself. They're often using it as a kind of a mechanism to get around other issues like what they see as fake news or uh, or free speech issues. And none of these are going to be solved by breaking up big tech into smaller firms, however that would 
work, you're still going to have exactly the same problems if you have uh, my Facebook or, or Twitter being broken up into their constituent. 100% of the reason conservatives are suddenly mad at Amazon or saying Amazon is a monopoly or we should have to do something about Amazon is because uh, Bezos uh, runs the Washington Post and criticizes Trump and, and his, his journalistic, I mean, he doesn't run it day to day. He owns this, this newspaper that is very critical of the right. So it's 100% just political straight up revenge, which is so we, we can cloak it in antitrust or concern for this or concern for that or labor. No, it's 100% political through and through. And it is actually just worth unpacking the facts here. So particularly about, let's say, Amazon. Uh, in the UK, Amazon accounts for about a third of all online sales. But online sales normally make up only about one in five of all retail sales. Um, it's been about a third of all retail sales during lockdown. So overall, the Amazon is barely in the top 10 biggest retailers in the UK. It, it is dwarfed by the old supermarkets, by the Tesco, Sainsbury's, as to Morrison's. So it's not like... Amazon has an infinite amount of power in, in any field. And if they suddenly increase the prices of anything, people will just go back to bricks and mortar retail. Right. People I, like I, Amazon. They want, they want to have more. Amazon is very popular among people for good reason. It has mastered the art of efficiently meeting human demand, supplying them things they can't get otherwise. Uh, and it, it's, it's, so it's not surprising it's successful. And it, again, it, it's not even no harm. It's the opposite of harm. It's a boon to customers. And, and it's the same with Google search. Like the, the cost of switching to a different search engine is basically zero. But when people have tried to mandate another search engine on people's phones or people's computers other than Google, it just annoys customers because it, quite frankly, they're providing the best product and they invest extremely heavily in it um, in order to improve it over time. So a, a key claim, if you have a monopoly, if you have a lack of competition, you should see a lack of innovation. You should see stagnation because there's no need to try to improve your product. But actually, we see the opposite, which is that the likes of Amazon and Alphabet, uh, the parent company Google, are some of the biggest R&D spenders in the world because they know that at any moment, another small company could start up in, in somebody's bedroom and provide a better product. Um, there's an academic by the name of Nicholas Petit who calls this fierce holistic competition. He, he discusses how the disruptor targets the fringe of a market, customers not served or with low profitability, and progressively moves up market to erode the profitability of the incumbent. So you think something like Zoom uh, undermine the potentially undermine the profitability of, of something like Google, oh, sorry, undermining something like Microsoft Teams as, as the incumbent in, in that kind of a market space. And they're providing very good service when it comes to video conferencing. So there's all this kind of competition going on in lots of different parts online that I don't think is usually appreciated by these people who very narrowly focus on one specific part of one market rather than thinking about the broader space for competition or the extent to which these companies are constantly innovating and changing their products and trying to improve them to ensure that the competitors potentially who come along uh, don't take them out. The, the one last issue that we're probably worth tackling is this question about whether or not it's inappropriate for these companies to be buying up smaller companies. So uh, uh, in particular, Zuckerberg got quite heavily criticized for the historic acquisition of WhatsApp and the acquisition of Instagram as well. Do we take that as a, a serious issue to competition? I don't think so. I think if anything, it's it's a positive in most cases. If you put yourself in the mind of an entrepreneur who has developed a fantastic innovative idea or is potentially on the cusp of doing one, a pretty good incentive to grow that and to take that seriously is knowing the, that there's a possibility of being bought up by a huge tech firm and being able to, to kind of 
take that hassle off your mind. There's a lot of benefits to uh, to being bought up by one of these bigger tech firms. So if anything, it's quite a good incentive for innovation and entrepreneurship. Yeah, I agree. I I definitely agree with that. And then, and the other thing I would say, you know, when I I'm, I'm arguing with a lot of uh, I'm trying to convince conservatives to go back to 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 kind of the previous, the more classically liberal approach that, you know, we don't, that we, you should not abandon principle to want to regulate these companies because some of them are occasionally mean to conservatives. Like the existence of, of these social media platforms has been so beneficial to the spread of conservative speech. If you get rid of them, if you go back to, you know, the, it, it was, it's not social media, but the era before social media, it's, it's, it's it's uh, mainstream media, which which was really really unfriendly to conservative speech and conservative ideas. So so these innovations have allowed ideas outside the norms of what kind of mainstream media people think about things. It's been it's been a it's been a boon. It's been a, a, a tremendous gift to conservative speech. You would you would regulate away this this uh, this new regime at your peril. Well, let's move on to some more specific conservative speech, uh, that of uh, the American president, Donald Trump. He's caused controversy in recent days by suggesting in a tweet that because of COVID-19 and the risk of mail-in ballot fraud, uh, that the general election in November could be delayed. Um, Is this more Trump uh, bluster or, or should we be taking this as a serious threat to democracy? Um, I mean, Trump's tweets are pretty embarrassing. <laughs> they're, they're bad. This was another bad one. I don't know why he um, feels the need to say these things because then it, 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 proves, it proves his critics right. When his critics say, oh, what if he tries to remain in office or remove the election or like so violate the norms of democracy just, you know, in a, in a like sort of to an insane degree. And then pe- people say, well, they're you know, you're being ridiculous for saying he would go that far or anything. And then he actually kind of does suggest it. Now, he does not appear to, I mean, he governs in a chaotic way that I have criticized and many, many times reason has, libertarians have much to be critical of, but he, he, he I don't think he, he, he doesn't govern in, in, to the insane degree that his, the tweets would suggest. It's like the tweet, the social media persona is someone somewhat different than, uh, than the actual, government figure. So I don't, I don't, I don't think there is like any chance the, the election would get delayed. I don't think anyone in the government really wants to do that. I, it's not, it's, it's very unclear that there is any power to delay the, uh, the election. Obviously people, you know, and then he said it, then there's a hundred people saying, well, here's the exact power to do it and saying other hundred, another hundred people saying, no, you can never do that. So who knows, but I think it's very unlikely. And I don't actually think he wants to follow through on that idea. He just kind of says stuff. Yeah, and you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to read in between the lines of the timing of this tweet, which happened to be around 10 minutes after the second quarter GDP figures were announced, which is a kind of classic Trump tactic. He does seem to have incurred the ire of uh, some previous supporters, though. If you look, the co-founder of the Federalist Society, Stephen Calabresi, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times saying, well, in response to this tweet, it's time to impeach Trump. So a lot of people seem to be taking this very seriously. I think I'm, I'm more in your camp and thinking, well, this is just classic Trump tweeting and he does govern uh, a little bit differently to how he tweets. But nonetheless, it's, it's worrying to see the President of the United States suggest something like this casually, even if it is for other reasons, like wanting to distract from economic figures or potentially, if I was being a pessimist, set him up for 
uh, having a scapegoat if he does lose. It does seem fascinating the extent to which Trump's critics will basically read him as if he is an Orban uh, in Hungary or a Bolsonaro in Brazil who is uh, genuinely not just kind of undermining democratic norms, which I think Trump does do by this tweet, undermine the idea that a president should always accept an election, but also they go much further and that's something Trump doesn't really ever do is Trump doesn't actually expand the president power, president's power uh, to the extent to which he is a dictator. He's a super, super ineffective one. Um, he's no more dictatorial than I would, I would say any previous president, the extent to which he can exercise power is because of fundamentally the, the American system has become unbalanced and it has empowered the president to, and the executive branch to an extraordinary extent. And that's ultimately Congress's fault. Uh, we inevitably see Republicans complain about it when there's a Democrat in power and Democrats complain about it when a Republican's in power. No one really wants to restrain the presidency in the end, though, do they, Robbie? No. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're never uh, the, the impulse to do that unfortunately, uh, never comes through because both sides want to keep open the option to wield absolute power once they uh, take back control of the government. So you, you can only have selective interest in limiting government's authorities. Despite everyone's obsession with Hamilton, it's almost like nobody's actually read the Federalist Papers, um, which, which for, for all it was a justification of Constitution, it did explain quite well why the Constitution was constructed and the way it was to separate powers and and, and understood that the faults of, of humanity, the, the fall of man, which is that uh, w- when you give someone unlimited power, there, there is a tendency in the wrong hands um, to exercise it wrongly. To some extent, though, Robbie, what has been most striking, I suppose, about the Trump era is the extent to which American institutions have largely been upheld? Um, I, it's so hard to tell whether things will um, go back to normal or what normal even is. If Trump is no longer, I mean, the, the relentless politicization of every aspect of life has been, has been unprecedented because Trump commands so much of the media's attention. It's just a 24 hour intensely tribal and nasty conversation about Trump and the news that's happening just all the time that you can't escape. And that was not true before Trump. And it's, it'll be interesting to see if it's, true after. I think our news and media culture is is very, very, very unhealthy. It news functioning more as entertainment and Trump is the ultimate entertainment president. Um, I I don't know if that will end up being uh, being an aberration. It very well might be if there if we have a, a, a regime that's kind of less interested in the the combativeness on both sides uh, and the media being less interested in the combativeness. So we will have to see. Yes, you know, Right. Well, the world the world hasn't ended. Fingers crossed. Although twenty twenty is certainly making a, a bid for that distinction. Um, but it, it, it's I, I think there will be some level of cooling down and calming down uh, if uh, if Trump loses in November. But we'll have to see. In the UK, we've got a, a imperfect parallel here in the Brexit vote and referendum in that that was another event that for a very long time seemed to politicize absolutely everything in people's lives. But it does seem to me, at least, although that effect is starting to wane slowly as time goes on, whether the same will hold for Trump and uh, post-Trump USA is another matter. But I'm an optimist when it comes to these sort of things. I think that obviously everyone's polarized to some extent and these issues will never entirely go away. But after a, a few moments of collective madness, things tend to return a little bit more to normal. It, it is fascinating that kind of normal political science 
crowd will always complain about a lack of engagement in politics and say, I really wish people would think more and vote more and there'd be higher turnout at elections and no not those people <laughs> well the, yeah the, the problem the, the problem is uh it's usually actually not a good sign if, if people are extremely engaged with politics it's a sign that things are going wrong whilst if things are generally going well people will disengage from from political life and just get on get on with their own lives and their own priorities and their own day-to-day interests um so the extent to which american society has become excessively politicized and everything is everything is political in the, the true postmodernist sense of of it as well as in the the kind of media life sense of it. it it can't possibly be a particularly good sign in practice well and it's very unlibertarian in a way or unclassically liberal yeah. because you know the the premise of classical liberalism and you know the u.s is to to some degree founded in classically liberal principles is is you get left alone you you're free to be left alone live your life as you see fit with minimal interference from the state and this is a state that now what we have now that commands your your attention all the time your ever your ever waking thought is held hostage by by the state uh, not not in a necessarily forceful or or or, or uh, you know governed by the law sort of way but just in a like can't look away can't talk about or focus on anything else sort of way and uh, that's uh, to some degree i think the the case for biden is is a is a case for um going having less uh polar polarization or or anger or feuding in, in the national spotlight that commands your attention in some way now of course i'm sure if Biden actually does become president. He will support all sorts of policies that I don't like that that do involve the government more so in your life. So, so the the uh, the the there's not a there's not an obvious uh, uh, refuge for the classical. Boy, I sound I sound really depressed on this podcast, don't I? Uh, things, are not, things are not that bad. I guess. Uh, it's it's just the it's the national political climate is rather is rather sad. I think imagining a world entirely made up of think tankers and politicos is a pretty depressing thought, and that's speaking as one. So I can I can see where you're coming from there. Uh, coming back to the tweet briefly, the tweet itself of, of Trump, is mail-in voting really the issue that he kind of makes it out to be? Because my impression was that the evidence suggests there's not really any major effect here. Yeah, there, there is. Of course, there are, you know, there are, are some uh, stories of voter fraud occurring because of mail-in voting or a bunch of other reasons. But no, the, the studies that have looked at it do, do not find uh, there, there's yeah, the, the kind of widespread uh, malfeasance that Trump has referred to is just is not true. It does not exist. Um, we have, you know, we have to have mail-in voting to some degree because we're in the midst of, of the pandemic. Um, so it's not, it, I don't know what Trump's thinking here is. And usually his tweeting, I don't think, is ever as strategic as people make it out to be. He reacts to what he's heard on the news or what he's seen or what he's thinking at the time. It's not part of some grander strategy. Um, I, I think he just, I, I think he doesn't like the idea of mail-in voting or mail-in voting is is because he's losing right now. Mail Given the likelihood of him losing, not certainty at all, but likelihood right now, uh, that's just something to blame it on, uh, even though it doesn't really, the evidence doesn't really show that at all. What broadly worries me about this is not necessarily the idea that Trump could actually delay the election or there's about to become some fascist, but by setting up this premise that a mail-in based election in which fewer people are physically turning out as 
is inevitably going to be the case in November since this pandemic continues to go on and on, doesn't it? He's creating a premise in which Republicans have an excuse not to accept legitimacy of the election result. Um, the Democrats, of course, have done this for years, you know, the not my president rhetoric, uh, this whole idea that Trump was only elected as a result of Russian misinformation. Um, we've got to remember that basically the entire point of elections is actually not for the victors. Uh, victors accept results in which they win. It's actually for the losers to have a legitimate process in which they uh, can accept that their opponent won the election. Uh, it, there is a potential risk here, and perhaps we're over, perhaps overemphasizing it, that Biden wins and then you have a you know, civil unrest not from the uh, Portland-style protest, Black Lives Matter protesters, but from the other side, and that you get some serious kind of societal splits in America. Is that something that is more than a theoretical threat in your mind, Robbie, or do you think things kind of calm down under President Biden? I think it, it very much depends how close the election is. If it's a blowout um, either way, um, you know, if if, if and if the then the polling right now kind of looks like it will be, although I, I suspect it will get a lot closer um, as we get closer to the election. Um, if, if Biden wins in a landslide, you know he's winning a lot of states. The electoral college, um, uh, it's not close. Then I, I I don't think there will I don't think there will be that kind of unrest happening. Now, if it's very close and either Trump narrowly wins or Biden narrowly wins, that could. Theoretically, I, it's very possible you might see that exacerbate the kinds of tensions we, we're seeing, where you ha- where you do have more Portland-style violence if Trump narrowly wins, or you might have some kind of opposite or equal reaction from kind of the more militant elements of the right, uh, and Trump might even encourage if he loses narrowly, he might encourage that sort of thing, or he or he might. Uh, speak to that fear that he he's been robbed or it's been cheated or election interference or that kind of thing. Um, so I'm 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 hoping that doesn't happen, but that I think that very well that that could be the case if it's extremely close. I like last last election was reasonably close. Um, you know, you're you're looking at a margin of tens of thousands of votes across like three states, and uh, and the other side did to some degree uh, blame it on like interfering. Russian Facebook uh, groups and ads and bots. So, and it, that that did not turn into a kind of violent civil unrest sort of thing accompanying that. Um, at, I guess at least until this year. Uh, but it's given that we already have that going on to some degree, uh, that it could it could continue or worsen uh, if if it's close. Shall we try to hazard some guess about? the potential election outcomes here. What what are we seeing as the likelihood? Let's let's go for percentage likelihood of a of a Biden presidency versus a, a Trump uh, re-election. I think so if you had asked me before the pandemic hit, I would have said Trump was likely to be reelected, maybe like 65, 70%. Uh, now I I think it's probably 75 or 80% likely uh, that Biden wins right now. Uh, that might go down a little bit uh, in the next couple of weeks. But I, I think Biden is likely to win. That's what the polling suggests. And actually, the polling tends to be accurate. It's the pundits that are not accurate. It's the it's us who are never accurate. Daniel? Uh, I'm going to go with 65 to 70% Biden as well. I Like Robbie, I would have put Trump's, Trump's chances far, far higher pre-pandemic. But it seems as though that and various other developments in US politics of late have really reduced that chance. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that Biden's going to win. But as we mentioned earlier, 
it's going to narrow as it gets closer to the election date and Trump is going to be rallying his base pretty pretty damn effectively. Yeah, I, I do want to be contrarian and, and predict a Trump election victory. But of course, uh, I just can't see the path just with the extent to which uh, even if the polls narrow substantially, the Biden lead is extraordinary and beyond anything Clinton ever got to. So I'd probably say at least over half, at least 60-70% likelihood of a Biden presidency at this point. But I should also caveat that by saying that I basically get every election prediction wrong. Uh, so uh, hopefully this will this one will prove on the right side. Well, on that note, um, Robbie, thank you very much for, for taking the time out of your day uh, just to join us on the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. Um, my name is Matt Flesh. I'm the head of research. I've also had Daniel Pryor, who is our head of programs, and Robbie, who's a senior editor at Reason Magazine in Washington, D.C. Uh, please do subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast provider, whichever monopolist provider you choose for your podcasts, uh, and hopefully have a good week ahead of you. Mm-hmm.